Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. If you look at our success, 95% of our sales has come through me. And it's just through the education and the process, walking them through how they can do what they should be doing. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back. Solar warriors, climate warriors. I don't know if you guys even appreciate the term warrior. We have our Suncast tribe. And as part of the Suncast tribe, I've often thought about how we are on the front lines of this battle. But I recognize that doesn't resonate with everyone. Uh, So let me know. I'd love your feedback. If you (laughs) have an aversion to the fact that I call you solar warrior, then let me know. What would you prefer that I call you? Regardless, you are a part of our Suncast tribe. Thank you for listening. You could be doing anything with your time right now. And so I'm grateful that you've chosen to join us for another episode of Suncast. And I am, frankly, spent. I have had such a uh, an amazing week so far. Yesterday, we had our first ever Suncast Clean Energy Summit, which was a virtual Summit. If you want to learn more about that, you should really uh, go check out the schedule. It was rocking with Andrew Birch, uh, aka Birchie, Adam Browning, Julia Hamm, John DeJulius, internationally renowned speaker and entrepreneur. So many good things happened yesterday at our first ever Suncast Summit. And I encourage you to go check it out at suncastsummit.com. But here we are, and you're listening to this perhaps a week, two weeks afterwards. So I don't want to presume too much and take up too much of your time. I'm honored that you're joining me and foraying into this fantastic world of clean energy. Today's entrepreneur, Scott Ringline, is the founder and principal of the Energy Alliance Group. Now we go really deep into how Scott thinks about servicing his customers. He has had such an amazing journey and some of the lessons learned on his journey are the power of networking, having a mentor, accepting what you can not change and accepting that you can't do everything. That it's okay to change your business plan and if you want to have a perfect plan, chances are you're going to show up too late. Never has that been more clear than right here in Suncast where instead of having a perfect plan, we threw caution to the wind and threw this uh summit out into the world. So I'm recording this a little later than I normally would have, but I'm grateful for you deciding that this is how you want to spend your time. Scott and I had a phenomenal conversation, and I think that you'll agree there's a lot in here for those of you who are looking for mentorship, in particular around sales and customer service skills. And so I encourage you to listen with your pen in hand. I took a lot of notes. I hope that you will too. If you do love this episode, then I'd encourage you to check out the almost 250 now episodes that we have of Founder Stories and Startup Advice over at mysuncast.com. And please sign up to receive a notification when every episode is published. You can do so by joining our Suncast tribe. You'll find more of that and other goodies at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Scott, welcome to Suncast. Hey, thanks, Nico. So glad to be here. Absolutely, man. I have just uh, enjoyed thoroughly the few times that we've had a chance to chat in prep for having this discussion. You know, I know very little, having never actually visited Michigan, uh, but I know that uh, as a Michigander, there are certain fundamental sort of views on life, and, and it is so refreshing. The no bullshit approach that you have to getting stuff done. So Scott, you have a a really inspiring and fascinating story, and I know we're going to unpack it. Suncast 
at its core is a peek inside the the life and sort of thought process of entrepreneurs, namely entrepreneurs in solar and clean tech ventures and and how they have structured their career. You have a, a bit of a dif- different story. And I'd like to start there, if as it were. I'm happy for you to go back as far as you like, set the stage for your technical formation. But bring me to a point in 2008 where your fundamentally your life and and direction changed. Yeah. So uh, prior to 2008, I spent my career in in automotive. Uh, 30 years uh, worked for a variety of companies. Uh, actually built engines for AJ Foyt, who's a famous uh, race car driver, went to work for Ford and worked on uh, engine design and assembly there. Then uh, got my master's degree. I'm a, I'm an engineer, trade geek. I have an undergrad mechanical, master's in manufacturing. I just love how things are built and a very, I have a good sense of uh, process, you know, so I can like visually see things, how things come together, which a lot of people don't have, including my wife. She needs to see it actually either built or on a piece of paper. Then I uh, decided to go uh, a little lower than, uh, you know, kind of the big three and went to work for a large tier one supplier. And my customer happened to be based in Asia. So um, I was there for 13 years. I'm a million mile flyer. I spent most of my career in a plane, had staff in Europe, Asia, South America, and the US. And I loved it. As we all know, in the mid 2000s, that's when things kind of, as they say, the wheels fell off the bus. Uh, first in the mortgage industry, then in Wall Street, and then that just impacted automotive. And uh, one day I came to work and that was my last day in automotive. I was a uh, single father with two kids, went to work. And by 11 a.m. I was back home. They drove me home. I had no car, no computer, no phone, no job, uh, mortgage to pay, bills to pay. And that was, uh, let's just say, my last day of corporate America and then the first day of redefining who I was, what I was going to do, and where I was going to go. And certainly, you know, part of the choice was uh, out of necessity, but I am a huge optimist. And, uh, you know, I, I started uh, something that I, I talk to people about is that when you decide to become, you know, an entrepreneur, or you're going to go into business for yourself. Uh, that's not the only thing you're going to do to get started. So, you know, I was painting everybody's whatever projects. I was building decks. I was doing landscaping. But in parallel, I got an office at an incubator in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. I hired an executive coach. We spent six months figuring out what were my skill sets and then how to apply that this huge industry that was growing out of the collapse, which was startups. And so the first company I started was called On Point Business Planning Solutions. I worked with entrepreneurs and uh, startups on putting together business plans and strategic planning. And just as that was kind of getting going, I had the opportunity to go to work for the Department of Energy and the Obama administration and work on the American Recovery Act for two years. It was by far the greatest opportunity I've ever had in my career. It also gave me an inside look at how the government works. And so, you know, it certainly gave me a completely different respect for what's going on inside the government rather than outside what we hear through the media. And then that was really the first introduction to technologies for efficiency, conservation, and renewables. That was the the beginning of my forte into this industry. I am fascinated by this story because not only is it all too common a story, but it's one that just doesn't get told very often. And you, you're not alone, right? There were millions of folks like you who at that, you know, that period of time was, you know, the great 
uh, recession, as we now refer to it, the global financial crisis. Uh, it upended not just your life, but millions of lives around the world, uh, not just in Michigan. Yeah, I remember you telling me a story, and I'd love if you could share this because I think it's fantastic. And probably folks uh, may have missed a, a really interesting turn in the conversation. As a company man, you had a car at the company. My understanding is that at, after that 11 o'clock sort of uh, jolt of reality and, and saying goodbye to your decades-long friends, you were driven. Driven home. I want you to put me in sort of that moment in time when you arrived at home and the conversation that you had with your family. But also, what did practically, what did you need to do at that moment? You don't have a car. You don't have a job. Uh, you have a very creative story of how you actually solved that solution. And, and that's sort of one of the foundational pieces of, of the next, next career. I'll tell you what, it was a blur. <laughs> so I, I, I can't, you know, I can remember, you know, I walked in the front door. Actually, I'll even, even one step back. So during that period coming up to 2008, they were walking people out the front door as they were hiring people through the back door. And I remember sitting next to a brand new uh, young engineer and uh, he was crying. And I'm like, yo, what's up? And he's like, you know, I just started and they're letting all these people go. And I'm like, well, <laughs> welcome to the industry. But the point of this is that, um, you know, during that period of time, one, uh, they were uh, there was nothing nice about it. You know, typically uh, it, um, there was always a state police car out front just in case something happened. So I remember pulling in the parking lot, seeing the car, and I'm like, oh, boy, you know, it's going to be the last day for somebody. Went in and the uh, our director of HR and then the corporate director of HR just happened to be standing in the uh, in the um, front, asked me to come back in uh, a conference room. And, uh, there, you know, there's no sweet talk. It was, you know, today's your last day. Turn over your badge, turn over your car, turn over your computer. And there was no goodbyes. You know, I'd worked there for 13 years. I, you know, a lot of people had come and gone, but, you know, I had staff that had been with me for 13 years. There was no opportunity to go say goodbye. It was, we'll pack up your stuff and send it to your house. Um, this person here is going to drive you home. You know, I just remember getting home and, and, Honestly, the, the first call that I made was to my uh, financial advisor, my CPA, to talk about, okay, <laughs> you know, uh, what's next? You know, how do I survive through this? I got bills to pay and all that type of stuff. And then um, the, the second thing was how to have the conversation with my kids and my uh, ex-wife, you know, because I was paying child support. I was raising two kids. Um, and then the third thing was I need a car. <laughs> so I called my sister and I'm like, uh, her husband's name, Kevin. I'm like, Hey, that car that Kevin drives every day, isn't it time he needs a new one? She's like, yes. And she said, why don't you come on up, work for me for a week and we'll give you the car. And it was, uh, you know, an old like Chevy blazer. Mm. And that's what I did. I went up there and I worked for her for a week. Now I had a car and, you know, it was one little thing at a time, you know, kind of like the check in the box. All right. I got to go get a phone. You know, I got to have a computer. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, and then just started reaching out to my circle of friends. Hey, this yeah. has happened. I need some help. Do you need anything? You know, yeah. reach out to parents. Mm -hmm. Here's the great story. You know, after I had told my kids, um, my daughter at the time was probably, I don't know, eight. And she comes home from school one day and she's like, dad, I told my friend about you losing sh your job. And my friend said, don't worry. My dad helps people get jobs. Wow. That's when I met my first mentor. Uh, he was a former executive from AT&T. He had an office at the incubator, Ann Arbor. And that was really the beginning for me is being brought into that mix work style and lifestyle because it's so different than corporate America. I, there's just absolutely no comparison. Just understanding that one, it was going to be okay and that somebody actually cared. <laughs> and two, 
you are now meeting people. So I, I loved a network. I love to meet people. And that was the first time that I really networked, especially that time, you know, in 2008, 2009, uh, I wasn't the only one, you know, and you'd be in a room of 50 people. All of them had lost their job and they were all looking at just a new path. And a lot of them went back to corporate America. You know, it just wasn't for them. Um, but I was I was fortunate that one, I'm an optimist and I'm you know, I was all about creating the solution and creating the future. And then honestly, having the opportunity to, to work for the Department of Energy uh, and, and meeting the people along the way. A, a lot of them are still in my life. They're still mentors. When I have struggles within the business, they're my first call. You know, it's not my wife, actually. It's my mentors, my business mentors. And that was the start. This actually resonates so deeply because it's true also in my life. But we just recently uh, also had an episode that published uh, with, with another good friend, Joe Tasson, that talks about this very transition, right? How to transition in your career, uh, especially for those who like, uh, like Joe and like you um, are coming from another industry. You and I have discussed a bit your aha moment. Would you help me understand the germ of an idea that led to your work in uh, fixing this inefficient system we call sort of uh, a commercial industrial complex? <laughs> Again, it was networking. Anybody that has the fear of networking, when you go into networking, everybody else either had that fear or has the fear. So, you know, one of the first things that I learned is, uh, you know, don't be afraid of it. They're all there for the same reason to meet. And then as you get comfortable with it and you meet those that aren't, make sure you take them under your arm and walk them around and have a purpose. Always have a purpose for why you're there, who you want to meet. You know, yeah, it's great to meet people, but certainly you network for a purpose. So with that said, the aha moment, I'm at a networking session. I'm meeting some new interesting people. And one of the gentlemen I met, he was in the lighting industry. Now, lighting, especially back then, so we're talking 2010, 2011, LED was just getting started. He was working with a company out of California. But my aha moment was their ability to fund these projects for 10 and 15 years. And that back then, that was completely unheard of. And you could take a project that just looked terrible on paper, but if you can get access to capital, long-term capital, you can make a bad project look really, really good. And that was it. I'm like, because I, you know, in automotive, I was in the capital side of the business. So I knew how hard it was to get capital, how hard it was to get long-term capital. And then, you know, the, the typical approach in, in the uh, industrial commercial corporate America was, Hey, we need a, a break even point within, you know, a couple of years. Oh, well that just eliminated 98% of the things that you're going to do. Honestly, uh, after that, I went home, I came up with the company names. I actually like built the structure, you know, what we were going to do. And originally it was focused on lighting, but the story that I built around it, that's what I used to bring others, propellers into my career that saw the same vision that I did. And, you know, within a year, I had two partners, staff that, you know, some of them are actually still with me. That was the birth of the Energy Alliance Group. Now, what I will say is uh, as a new uh, startup and entrepreneur, it, it's amazing. We go back and we look at the goals that we established and the things that we are going to accomplish like in the first year or so. And uh, they were bold, <laughs> but uh, we certainly uh, had a lot of fun going back and looking at, oh man, we were going to do all this. And now we're, you know, three, four years into it and geez, we still haven't done it, but we haven't given up, but we've gotten a lot better at what we do. And, and we're no longer just in lighting. And that's kind of like one of the lessons learned that I've come to understand over, gosh, it's going on eight years, nine years now is, uh, you know, you have to have a plan first, 
but it's also okay to change the plan. And I meet so many uh, people in startups and stuff like that that are truly hell-bent on, well, this is our plan. We're going to stick with it. If it's not working or are you going back and looking at why you failed and what could be changed to, you know, propel, that's exactly what we did. You know, we saw an opportunity not to utilize these tools that we've run across for lighting, but we really took it to the next step and said, you know what, it's not about the technical side. So we don't rep or push any technology. It's more about the process and the focus on the financial side first, because that's where the transaction fails. There's you know lots of studies out there, statistically 98% of these types of projects never leave the planning stage because they don't fit within the financial model that Indeed. they're required to fit into. Why is it that so many organizations continue to use these outdated inefficient energy systems to begin with? Because that's how they've been doing it for the last 50 years. I mean, honestly, it it, it is mind boggling why they do it. Also, it's fear. You know, a, a lot of times we'll get the, well, this is too good to be true. How can that be? Well, first of all, it's, you know, lots of people are doing it. So if you don't believe us, we'll put you in touch with others. But just because you've been doing it this way forever and ever and ever, doesn't mean you should. You know, when I speak at conferences, one of the, one of the things I start out with is a picture of the first cell phone that was built by Motorola. And it's, you know, cripe, it's 14 inches tall. And, you know, I'm like, now look around. Does anybody else still have that? Well, of mm. course not, you know, but they, they didn't question, geez, I got to spend $500 on the latest iPhone. What's my payback on that? But they'll question, oh, I'm going to put in a light bulb that's going to reduce my energy cost by 70% and my maintenance cost by 70%, but it doesn't fit into our old financial model. So we're not going to do it. That's time and time again, or, or the, well, we only pay cash. And then you look around the building and we're like, okay, well, I can see why nothing's getting done because cash is not the answer. Why don't right. you take the cash, put it into your process because that's what you're really good at. And then we'll bring in the financial mechanisms to actually make it work. And we just ran into that you know, um, with a company that needed a new roof. We put together a proposal to put a new roof on, put a one megawatt solar system in, get them a 25-year fixed uh, funding uh, maintenance program for 25 mm -hmm. years. It was cash flow positive from day one, and they turned it down because the cash model didn't hit their two and a half year payback period. This is something that we as as folks in the industry for years have keep bumping into, right? It's a I still can't wrap my head around uh, around this notion. Uh, how do you counteract that argument or, or what's what sort of logic do you present when someone says, well, we need a two and a half year payback? Well, if they're not so focused on cash, the <laughs> first thing we say is, all right, I'm going to put a dollar in your pocket the first day we start. And then you really have to, you know, the, what I enjoy about it is because I came out of the corporate world and I know what they're up against and, the, you know, these crazy financial rules that they're trying to fit within and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I can sympathize. I, I, I get it. I put it in kind of into their world a project. It's going back several years. You know, the plant manager was kind of, ah, this is too good to be true. And I'm like, all right. His name was Jim. I'm like, Jim, how about this? Tomorrow, when you come into work, you're going to have all new lighting, new HVAC. And for the next 25 years, there's going to be a dollar on your desk because you did that. And it'll all be paid for out of the money you spend today. And that was where it really hit him that, oh, okay, so you don't want my money. You're going to, I'm going to actually make money by doing this. And that's part of, I don't, I don't care whether it's, uh, you know, solar where you're generating or it's uh, efficiency where you're reducing. The whole point is you're already spending the money today. If you're spending $100 a month on utilities, 
I want to take $90, improve your building, and then put $10 into your pocket. And sadly, it's a hard sell because they just don't understand the concept of you're already spending it today. You're already buying all that new stuff. But guess what? You're just handing it over to the utility company or you're handing it to your maintenance guy because you're not willing to take that chance. But what has really changed are some of the financial tools out there that are one, providing them the terms that they really do need, but also mitigating the risk that they're just not willing to take, especially in the industrial sector. You know, time and time again, I'll hear, well, I don't want to get involved in something like this because I don't even know what we're doing in a year, 15 years. You want me to sign a contract for a 15 or a 20 or 25 year PPA? No, no, I can't do it. Yeah, we're not even sure we're going to be in this building in 10 years. Why would I? Right. I would ascribe right. that level of risk to to, to the re- relocation or the or the sale of this asset. That's and, right. And, yeah, I totally That's get that. Right. And, we'll, and I know we're going to talk a bit about some of the mechanisms that you're referring to that help uh, de-risk those types of projects. One of the things that I found effective, and I'm sure that you, given that you're in the lighting industry, you've you've redirected a customer's thought process around this, but I found that most industrial uh, facility managers you're in that conversation with, they are either unsure or they have forgotten how the two and a half year payback cash cycle was defined. And in many cases, it's not every, but in many cases, it is simply, it's less about the financial metrics or, or sort of return that they want. It is a calculation they're doing in the back end of, is this the right next place to spend capital? And and re, and revolve that capital back into the operations, right? So when you spend money, for example, on lighting, the lighting itself typically pays back in you know one to two years. Yeah, and so therefore that that then becomes like the logical benchmark for opex, right? Yeah. I know I can invest in lighting with a two year payback. Why would I invest in solar with a ten year payback? Oh yeah, that's a that's a misdirection because. A lighting retrofit, and you would know this better than us, I'll ask you the question. If you do a lighting retrofit today, and we're not talking about LEDs, which is a whole different animal, but in the old days when we were replacing T8s with T12s, uh, et cetera, mm-hmm. how long was the life expectancy of that project? Oh, that's such a great question. <laughs> not that long. And, and that's part of the story. Here's another issue that's, that's you know troubling out in industry. On the capital side of the equation, the only thing that they're looking at, cost to implement. Mm-hmm. not cost to operate and maintain. And time and time again, and in fact, you know, we're working on a project. Uh, last night, I had to update some financials for our, for our client. Time and time again, maintenance operation side far outweighs just the savings on the utility side to offset the cost of capital. But yet they're, com- tre- they're treated completely separately. And so, you know, the whole thing about, well, I need to find the cheapest so that I can meet these fictional payback targets. Right. They give little or no concern that they're then going to hand it over to the facility manager, the operation manager that now has to come up with a budget to maintain it because now you went cheap. Guess what? You're going to have to put more money into it to maintain it quicker. Those discussions never take place. Never, ever take place. I want to augment that conversation as well with a savvy salesperson, and I know that you are, will also counter that argument by saying, hey, you know what? I actually really, I think I understand the metric. You've got to benchmark that, the asset lighting in this case, which I'm going to have to replace in five years is I need it to pay back in two and a half years so that I can have at least two and a half years of cash flow to pay for that retrofit again. Right. Um, because when I change those lights in five years, I've got no asset to sale. So there's two pieces of this argument. Wonderful. Can I use the same benchmark? You want it to pay back in 50% of the useful life. Awesome. Solar has a 25 year useful life. So according yeah. to your standard, I have 12 and a half years <laughs> to pay this asset back. Is that accurate? And they'll uh, always they'll always say, "Wow, that actually okay." I I yes, don't. But you're painting me in a box here, and I'll say, "Oh wait, I get that." But like we already mentioned, that the reason is because you needed two and a half years to 
save up enough money to do that all over again, which itself is a is a, a self fulfilling prophecy of never having any savings. You're just right. using you're just using the efficiency to pay for more efficiency. How about if we actually go into your financial model and ascribe a salvage value? The salvage value and the in kind benchmark of like a number of years to pay back the asset. Um, that you're using as a heuristic for end of life, like the useful life cycle. For me, those two things seemed to, to work wonders on operations or facilities managers because now you're moving them in the direction of saying, okay, wait, actually, this is a really interesting heuristic. This solar on my roof, unless I'm doing it through a lease uh, where I don't actually have access to the, to the asset itself, is going to have a salvage value. And oh, by the way, if you're doing it as a lease and you're a savvy financial manager, you can use the salvage value that many people try to sort of cover up in the financial analysis to try and negotiate back down at your right. lease. Because you can say, wait a minute, you're going to take this car, just like at a car lot, you're going to take this asset and you're going to resell it at the end anyway. So why don't I get a benefit from that? Why don't you go ahead and yep. give me some of that value back? Anyway, I don't yeah. want to belabor, belabor that conversation because I feel like you and I could probably go back and forth. I feel like this could turn into itself a little uh, a little uh, mini class on sales to, to C&I uh, customers. Yeah, but you're, you're, you are spot on that conversation and that's stuff that we talk about. I mean, we're we're doing a proposal right now. Their first question was, okay, well, what happened, you know, what about this what if situation? All right, well, guess what? You've depreciated an asset for five years. The market value for that asset is probably 10 times the value you have on the book. Sell the damn thing. And And, and unfortunately though, a lot of, you know, because of the risk, you know, oh, well, we, we're we not in the business to sell equipment. Oh, you sell shit every single day, you know? <laughs> so what's the difference? It's just another widget. We see that all too often. And the other, my, you know, my controversial argument is um, on solar, just like you said, nobody wants to fund solar longer than 10 years. You'll be lucky 15 years. But yet I look at it, it's an asset. Right. All right. We're going to pick it up and we're going to move it someplace else, you know, even like uh, uh, under a power purchase agreement. Everybody's so focused on making sure that the owner is responsible for the asset if they just decide to opt out. Look, it's got value. There's a whole nother market out there that would love to have solar at a reduced rate that still has 10 or 15 years left. Well, I'll, I'll tag on to that, though, Scott. This is uh, it's true. And that's a, it's an age old argument until recently didn't have there wasn't a secondary market. Right. So this is akin to doing things the old way uh, or the way they've always been done, but sort of placed as uh, as within our own solar industry of saying, well, because we never assigned a, a resale value, uh, we can't do it now, even though in the last three to five years, a resale market has actually uh, materialized and we can come up with the metrics for what this asset is worth in the secondary market, because in fact, these sales are happening and they haven't made their way back into the, 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 the legal and financial structures to say, well, this isn't the way we have to always keep doing it. Yeah. Or, or let's even take it one step farther. How about we donate it, get the tax write off mm. and implement in places that, you know, they just need one panel so they can read a book at night. And that's why people like us <laughs> do what we do is, you know, the one thing that I love about what I do versus in corporate America, there are no challenges to ideas. The only challenge is whether or not you can make it happen, you know, and if it can't, all right, well, that, that didn't work out so well. Let's, uh, let's go to the next one. Hey, I'd like to invite you on a journey with me and the Suncast media team as we explore how to continue to deliver content live in a virtual space as we are all still trying to get through this pandemic and get to the other side while building capacity and community. This experiment is called the Suncast Clean Energy Summit. You can learn more at www.suncastsummit.com. Pretty straightforward, right? We have world-class leaders giving us insights and tips, panels, discussions, TEDx-style forays into topics diverse as impact on your career, innovation around technology, diversity, inclusion. We are bringing you some of the brightest minds 
and most forward-thinking folks that have been guests on Suncast and a few that are coming up as guests. So I'd encourage you to check it out, suncastsummit.com. Don't miss it. We've got three rolling weeks of content starting on the 22nd of April. If you've missed that, no fear, because we also are rolling out content on the 29th and the 6th of May. And that last day, we are featuring conversations around Latin America, kind of a state of the union. So jump in, learn more, roll up your sleeves, join us in the community. Oh, and we also launched our first Facebook group, the Clean Energy Guild. You can learn more about that as well as suncastsummit.com, or you can just ping me on LinkedIn, find me on Facebook, and you'll be able to find the Clean Energy Guild. Solar Warriors, I know that some of you, like me, are just stuck inside right now, quarantined, and I want to ask you, don't let this time go to waste. This is the best time to learn how to incorporate new Solar Plus capabilities to your toolkit, like Extensible Energy's DemandX software. You can get that in your projects. Commercial customers will thank you. Extensible Energy is arranging remote training sessions right now that you can use to sharpen your Solar Plus software skills during this slow period so that you will have a competitive advantage when the market picks up again. You'll learn how to combine solar installations with inexpensive AI software and increase your commercial sales by automatically reducing demand charges with or without batteries. So get your solar business ready to grow now by signing up for the free DemandX training at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Don't miss out. You know, I remember before going into automotive, sort of always wanted to be an educator. How does that manifest in your sales process? As you and I talked, I am not sales by trade. Automotive, you always have your your customer. So you're, you're only selling them maybe an idea or a process or something. Then I step out into the world where, in essence, we're selling something. We're selling a solution. But I am not a salesperson. I'm not the cold caller or anything like that. I'm about education first because you know 99% of those that we talk to about what we know they don't know and so the first thing is educating them on what we do know and how we can help them but also as you educate you're also building a trust and a source of information so regardless of like I I speak all over the country at conferences about not what we do, but what should be done and what's going on in industry and stuff like that. And I'm just a firm believer that that get educated and believe the first place that they're going to go and look for help is from the person they got educated. And so, you know, I focus a lot on, you know, whether it's a podcast, a webinar, writing articles or speaking that's my method of selling and and, and our success has come through not traditional sales we don't market uh, we don't send out flyers we educate every layer of the people that we work with including our you know the contractors and the partners that we have because once they're educated they're an extension of us from a sales standpoint. They're out talking to potential clients. They're trying to sell whatever they sell. But at the same time, we tell them, look, if you can't get the sale the way you traditionally do it, then offer them a different approach and we'll help you get that sale. But then what we're going to do is, well, probably it's not just what you're trying to sell. There's far more that could be done. Let's try and help them do everything that they possibly can. And that's, you know, I just, I love to educate. I had an opportunity to teach at a university. I did not take advantage of it just because of the situation that uh, was going on at that time. Being able to go around and talk to large audiences about this industry that we're in is my way of being an educator. No different than, you know, being on your show today and 
you know, there's listeners out there that are getting educated, not only on the, the entrepreneurial side, but, you know, some of the, the processes that you and I are using in our everyday business lives. Scott, it is fascinating to me the way that you have been able to grow from this mindset of selling a process and an internal product as an engineer to really selling concepts and ideas and, and physical products and developing relationships externally as the CEO of a company and your, your methodology of selling without selling and, um, you know, selling through education tells me that you are a student of follow-up. And as we know, the gold is in the follow-up. How do you structure your week schedule to ensure that you're doing a good job giving um, this follow-up that's necessary uh, when you're when you're ma- navigating uh, sort of customer engagement as well as running a business? Yeah, great question. So uh, one of my downfalls <laughs> is I'm a stickler for details that comes out of my upbringing, but also uh, being a you know an engineer, just very very process driven. My week. And my days start out the same exact way. Sundays are catch up on email. Mondays are I look at my entire week and look at like time slots to make sure that, you know, I know what my schedule is going to be. And then every single day I go through the same process. I create what I call my daily to-do list. And even though I know you're uh, listeners are not able to see this, but basically I put this together with my daily schedule, who I'm going to call and follow up with. Sometimes it gets a little lengthy right now. It's about two pages, Yeah, but uh, I spent a lot of time in the car. When do you do, sorry, when do you do that? When do you write that to-do list? Every evening when I go, you know, I work every night. Typically my, uh, my wife is a you know, she gets up and uh, leaves very early. So she's in bed by eight. So usually I'm back in the office by uh, eight, nine o'clock and taped on my work desk. I have my kind of daily to-do list and it starts with meeting reminders. If I have a meeting the next day, I send out a notification to whoever it's with just to remind them that we do have it. I create my daily schedule and kind of, uh, you know, who I'm going to talk to, mm-hmm. what I'm going to do. I then set an alarm on my phone as a reminder of things. Then I go through my calendar, go through my voicemails and my text messages, emails, LinkedIn, stuff like that. And I just do it religiously, no matter what. As you, as you referred to, uh, the follow-up is the gold. You know, a couple of things that I've implemented in, in my uh, career is, you know, I'm a stickler about following up with those that I meet. Even if it's a, a handwritten note that I would mail to them and just, you know, thanks, uh, great, uh, great to meet you. You know, maybe we'll follow up. But then on their business card, I'll write um, when I met them and where I met them. Because, you know, in a couple of years down the road, if I call these people up and I just introduce myself as Scott Ringline, they don't know what that is. But if I say, because I write on my card where I met them and, uh, you know, the event and stuff, I'll, I'll introduce myself as Scott Ringline and then lead into, hey, you know, we met at this event back in 2019. That's the trigger because it's not so much the person, you know, all of us get calls all the time from people that we may have met. That's not what I remember. I'll remember not the name. I might remember a face, but over the phone, I'm going to remember where the event was, Mm. you know, so I'm a stickler about putting stuff on my calendar. So if I talk to somebody and they say, Hey, would you follow up with me in a couple of weeks or in a month? I'll put a note in my calendar and make darn sure that I follow up with them. One of the first books that my staff bought me was the, uh, the history of checklists how they got started. Um, you know, my wife works in the medical industry. So, you know, a lot of that type of stuff is driven in there, but, um, I'm, I am a stickler for process and checklists. And, uh, the thing that, uh, I always promoted, especially in my corporate life is I don't care how many times you've done it. What happens is the more you do it, the chances are the more you'll miss because you get comfortable. And so, you know, even in corporate, I worked 13 years in one department. 
I still pulled up the same checklist I always did when we had a new customer. Wow. And went through it and, you know, okay, I need to do this, 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 this is how we're going to file. And that's something that we've developed around our business, you know, very structured like automotive. There's different phases that you're going to go through. When you reach a certain milestone, it's really a, a go, no go. You know, if it's a go, all right, here's the next step. If it's a no go, well, now you need to do some lessons learned. Why is it a no go? And then, you know, file it appropriately. But also within that are then, okay, if you have a specific form that you need to use, all right, well, you click this link, it opens up the form, uh, quarterly training on it, you know, so everybody's familiar with the process. Is there a, is there a process that you were trained on? Um, so maybe Six Sigma or some other process that you're deriving these methodologies from? So I've had education in all those. I think it's a collective measure of all that input, what has really driven it is it doesn't matter whether you work for maybe a, a high level tier one, they have a method introducing something into the organization. You know, it might be a new product introduction system, NIPIS. That was, you know, one of the acronyms that were right. used. But it's really just, it's a path from A through Z. Here's how you should go through. And then as as you do it, if you do it right and you do your, you know, your lessons learned and stuff, you're going to continually improve it. But I think what's important is the repetition. You know, yeah. we talk about sales and making sales calls. All right. I'm going to, this is my approach. If I'm going to call somebody, this is how I want the flow of the call to go. These are mm -hmm. the things I want to make sure I cover. Absolutely. That's how you get better at it. If you don't, then you can never figure out, well, why did this guy say yes and this person say no? Because you don't have a process in front of you to learn from it. Yeah, I love and, that so much. The The post-mortem process is as important as the pre-call planning process. And, uh, you know, I also have a similar experience in my life uh, where uh, a mentor pointed to, uh, and I've shared this before on the podcast, but... I was working in Latin America and he effectively said, look, my, my fear for you is that you're not getting enough reps. You know, it's just, it's mm. such a, um, the, the flow of projects in that market is one, one hundredth of the flow of say projects in, uh, you know, the, the U S Northeast. So someone mm -hmm. half your, someone half your age is going to be your boss. If you mm -hmm. keep down this path, because you're there, there will, they will have seen more deals in a year than you saw in your career. But yeah how's how's that for a wake-up call yeah well, yeah i guess i better get to work uh -huh. yeah. so, so scott you have a uh you know you, you've you've demonstrated that not only do you have a methodical mind but you also uh can be a contrarian i'm curious what uh what thing or things might you consider to be true that others might challenge you on what, what's controversial about your worldview so probably one of the big uh, controversial things that are going on, at least I can say in the, in the state of Michigan right now, and I know it'll come around full circle, but uh, you know, the pushback by utilities, they don't need the public's help to become more uh, dependent on renewables. You know, oh, we can do it all ourselves. All right. Well, if you could do it all yourself, a, you wouldn't be in the position that you are in today. And uh, B, you would have realized that wasn't the answer and you would have made a switch, you know, longer ago, which would have been probably a lot better for your revenues and shareholders and all that. And here in Michigan, um, there's a cap in regards to the number of interconnections from the general public. So say you own a house and you want to put solar on. Well, once they reach that cap, no one can interconnect. And so, you know, they're all about promoting that, oh, you know, we're embracing renewables and, you know, we're going to be net carbon by 2050. But then what's going on behind the curtain that the general public really doesn't know about is they're able to get these blocks in. You know, whether it's, oh, well, I know we charge you seven cents to buy the power from us, but we're only going to buy it back for three and a half cents because, you know, we got all those carrying costs, which, you know what, that's fine. You know, everybody has to make a dollar. But my argument is we were giving it to the utilities for free, meaning I have to interconnect. I have to do something with the power. 
whether it's store it, use it, or send it back to the grid so somebody else can use it, even if it was zero, they still are not interested in removing the cap. And what's that cap set at right now? How close is it to being hit? So there's three primary providers in the state of Michigan, um, and we split it up by Upper Peninsula, Lower Peninsula. But the Upper Peninsula, it's already been hit twice. It's going to be hit the third time. And it's small. It's 1% of all the power. What? Yeah. That's absurd. And the same is true. Uh, the, The second largest, that cap will be hit probably in the third or fourth quarter of this year. And then the largest, the cap will be hit. It's expected to be hit within, you know, 2021 or 2022. So, you know, we've What's been spending the largest a lot. Utility? Which one is that? Uh, DTE Energy. DTE, that's what I thought. Yep, serves, yep. serves uh, Detroit. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, Southeast Michigan. So, yeah, so those are the challenges that we have. So, um, you know, you know uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've spent a lot of time at the Capitol building, you know, meeting with reps and senators to get this on their radar because there's multiple bills that are actually making their way through that they're going to have to look at and they need to understand it from both sides of the equation because of course when you're a mighty powerful utility you can throw a whole lot of money at you know these uh public figures influence the decisions that they made that's the world that we live in you know it's a lot of grassroots effort and we're trying to make uh, the points that, you know, it's truly unfair that when they say, well, we agree that the rate we're going to pay is OK. So if you agree, why do you need a cap? You should be open arms to have as much being provided to you because that's just going to increase your revenue. And uh, so it, it's a struggle here. And but yet you can go to other states and, you know, they're open arms in regards to, you know, renewable energy sources. So just one of many challenges that uh, that we have, uh, at least in the state of Michigan. And, and like I said, this will happen elsewhere. It's just, it's not a if, it's just a when. What are a couple of key takeaways for you from the most important mentors in your life or career? Certainly networking, the realization that although you might have what you consider a competitor, the market is so big, you should embrace your competitors because they need you just as much as you need them. Yeah. And nothing worse than not being able to say, take on a project and be so close minded to like invite a competitor in, you know, the other thing is being open-minded with your mentors, you know, especially when they give you some tough love, you know, they're doing it because uh, they respect you and you have a personal relationship with them. Um, not because there's this uh, love hate relationship and create more of them. You're surrounded by mentors, recognize the fact that, that they are mentors to you and utilize them. Scott, where do you see the next three to five years? Like what are, what's on the horizon right now for not just uh, renewables, but efficiency broadly? Uh, where, what, what corners are you looking around? Really production and reduction. Uh, one of the statements we have reduced first before, before you produce. What's interesting is within the utilities, they are being uh, pressured and they have some significant goals in reducing the amount of energy that's being used. That's, I mean, that's the first thing. It's very costly to build additional energy production. So they're going to go with efficiency, really see that that's going to happen. And statistically, our buildings need it. But then secondly, you know, we have finally reached the point products like solar are highly competitive compared to what you're buying off the grid. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's a general statement, but for the most part, uh, with the financing tools that are out there and the technical tools that are out there, there's no reason why everybody should not be looking at solar. Well, we'll definitely not hear any arguments against that <laughs> within within our tribe. That is for sure. You mentioned a book that the staff bought you, the History of Checklist. Are there any other books that uh, are on your reading list now or that have made a big impact on you? So the latest one, and it's funny that you asked this because I just actually sent it to uh, 
to one of the organizations I belong to because we should be handing them out to our uh, state reps and senators. But it's called The Grid. Oh, yeah. Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future. Yeah. By uh, Gretchen Bach. Gretchen Bach. You know, I haven't uh, I haven't peeled the uh, the book open yet, but it has a lot to do with the current conversation that we're involved with here in Michigan about caps and, you know, being closed minded in regards to what the new grid will look like. It's also on Bill Gates, I think 2000, 2016. Yeah. yeah. Reading list. So I, it was, it was yeah. one that I've got on my reading list. I haven't gotten through and, and I have every intention of having uh, Ms. Baki on the show. Once I do, oh, get wow. through it. that would be, that would be a phenomenal thing yes. to make happen. Where can people find you and find more about you? Yeah, a couple of places. Well, first of all, they can always go to our website, which is www.energyalliancegroup.org, all one word. At their browser, they can type in what's possible dot today, and it'll take them right to our website contact page. That is so savvy. I like that so much. <laughs> well, as we have uh, a few a few more waning seconds here, how could the Suncast audience help you? Lots of the listeners are probably sitting there thinking, man, I know I need to be more efficient, but I have no idea where to start. Guess what? Start with the conversation first. Really that easy and becoming more efficient and conserving and implementing renewable energy is far easier than most so we'll be sure to link to not only energyalliancegroup.org and uh, Scott's LinkedIn, but we'll be sure to uh, connect anyone who wants to reach out and ask for an introduction. Happy to do that as well. Scott, let's end today, as we always do, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I think, honestly, the biggest push that's going to come is actually from the financial side, the financial market. We're all seeing people that are not investing in carbon production, like coal producing and drilling in the Arctic, they are going to start investing in renewables and efficiency measures. Yeah. And an ever increasing divestiture of, uh, of the funds from fossil fuels and into renewables. And That's uh, right. as we see that take shape, more financial metrics and models will, will form that help merge uh, the, the efficiency and the generation, so the reduction in the production of yep. energy to, to cater to the market that we know is about to really, in earnest, begin to boom. We've been listening to Scott Ringline, founder and CEO of the Energy Alliance Group of North America. Scott, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back on Suncast. Thank you, Nico. It was wonderful. All right. All right. Man, we're wrapping another amazing conversation here on Suncast, and I am honored that you are one of these outro listeners. About to wrap with Scott Ringline. I'm sure that you are as saturated as I am with all the value bombs that were dropped in this episode. If you're eager to keep on learning, well then, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more. Get your checklist manifesto over at mysuncast.com. If you click on the listen button, that'll take you to our blog page where you can see the show notes. And in fact, we're transcribing these show notes now with my friends over at Thyssen. So you can click on that Thyssen button and you can see in real words the transcript of this episode. I'd encourage you to do that if you want to read it and and pull some of the goodies out that you've heard here today, or just to remind yourself of what uh, Scott and I talked about. If it resonated with you the way it resonated with me, I was just so amazed where he said the realization his son had, my dad helped people get jobs. You know, if that resonates with you, then I'd love to have a discussion because one consistent thread in my career is receiving and giving that type of mentorship in the gap when someone is in transition between jobs and careers, it seems that it's the time most often in my life that folks look for me and ask a lot of questions or pick my brain as it were. So here at Suncast, we've created a coaching program and uh, I provide coaching to not only folks that are in career transition, but also startups and uh, founders of startups who are looking for 
a strategic advisor looking for someone that they can talk with and can get advice and guidance from or just looking to connect through uh, my network and hear my thoughts on how their business is running. Coaching has taken on many different forms in the last few years. Uh, if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to click on the work with me button over at mysuncast.com. Well, I do hope that you will continue to tune in to the Suncast Clean Energy Summit. Again, you can check that out at suncastsummit.com. Come back next week. Not only are we having our 250th episode and a special coming out on Tuesday and the summit on Wednesday, the 29th, but then on the 30th, we have Mr. Merrick Kubik of Fluence. He's one of Forbes 30 under 30, and he's going to talk about his experience jumping in to the early days of solar storage, of energy storage rather, with what has become the largest storage provider in the world, Fluence, an AES company. So hope you'll join us for that next week. And I hope that in the meantime, you will continue to keep leaning in and learning. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior, Climate Warrior, or however you would prefer that I would refer to you. But do continue showing up. It's half the battle.